Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the NAACP is gathering signatures for a petition to remove Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey from office. Then, FEMA has expanded disaster public assistance to 12 counties affected by the June tornadoes. And there have been several major cyber attacks across businesses and government bodies in Mississippi within the last month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The NAACP of Mississippi is petitioning the sheriff of Rankin County to resign because of his connection with five former officers who brutally assaulted two black men earlier this year. He has said that he's not going to step down. The five former deputies and a former Richland police officer pled guilty to charges of sexual assault, torture, and tampering with evidence. Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey has told reporters he is ashamed of the actions committed by those former officers and and they are reviewing their policies to prevent this from happening again. But leaders of the NAACP says that's not enough. Angela English is president of the Rankin County branch of the organization. She says they are gathering signatures in support of removing Bailey. Under his direction, there were at least five to seven suspicious deaths. Uh, while the people were in his custody and or in the Rankin County Jail. There probably will be more brought to light now that people feel more comfortable with the so-called self-named proclaimed Goon Squad members being in custody. Uh, there was always that intimidation factor that helped people from speaking more freely about injustices that they themselves or members of their families had encountered while being detained or in the custody of Rankin County Sheriff's officers. Uh, we believe that he has shown that he is not an effective leader and that he has allowed this kind of culture for violence and excessive force to exist without any impunity being afforded to the officers who carry these erroneous acts. We don't believe that this was the first time that this has happened. We just believe that this 
is the first time they've been caught red-handed. Uh, had Michael Jenkins succumbed to his injury, and had he not been so bold as to speak up and speak out and and press charges against these people, these why these criminals, we would still be this still would be going on under Brian Davis' direction. English was driving while she was speaking to Stribling. She says the sheriff's department needs more transparency and accountability and doesn't feel Bailey is fitting that role. We feel inadequate training. Uh, there was no body cam being used, even though thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money has been sent to equip them with this. And they received grant money to equip them with, with camera body cams. They had no policies governing how they would use these body cams. So that's poor direction given by the sheriff himself. He did not feel that he needed to get a, a compliance officer. And he's been in the office for more than a decade. It didn't occur to him that they were out of compliance on any level in all this time. And he's been in office for more than a decade. His uh, so-called surprise about them lying to him about planning evidence and finding uh, going into the home without a warrant, all of that uh, act of surprise did not. That's all just been hunt with us. As I said, we are sure that there are more than six tombs, five tombs in that uh, department. Those were just the five that got caught. The Franklin County citizens who elected him because they wanted him to protect and serve all of the people, whether we voted for him or they voted for him or not, he was elected to serve and protect everyone, not just the select few. And we feel that he has let the, the county and the state down. Around 1,000 people have signed the petition for Bailey's removal so far, according to English. We've gotten a lot of response. You'd be amazed, and and, and what we have found is it, it, not just applicable to things that have happened to uh, minorities, even though we are the highest percentage of those being affected. This is a human rights issue, civil rights issue. Uh, it is not just a black issue. According to um, the attorney for the Rankin County Board of Supervisors, the county meeting, he said that the governor was the only person who could remove Brian Bailey from office and only if he had a petition calling for more than 30% of, and they had to be Rankin County citizens, signing a petition. I can't give you the exact percent, but I know it was around 30, 32% of the Rankin County citizens. Then he, the governor, would get a committee and they would vet those signatures to make sure that they were Rankin County citizens. And after that, he would make a determination as to whether or not he would remove him from office. I don't know if he thought that we were going to not pay attention to it and not do it, but we are going to do exactly what he said. And we're going to do it according to the statutes for the state of Mississippi to make sure that it's legal 
and we're going to work to obtain those signatures, however long it takes to get them, because we are serious about this. Angela English is president of the Rankin County chapter of the NAACP. Coming up, FEMA has expanded disaster public assistance to 12 counties affected by the June tornadoes. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz. 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has approved 12 additional counties for federal public assistance due to tornadoes that swept through the state June 14th through the 19th. The declaration brings the total counties that will receive aid to 28, and it also includes the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. Our Will Stribling speaks with Mallory White, She's Chief Communications Officer with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. She talks about how this expanded aid can help cities recover from the disasters. We saw that there were counties out there that had additional needs, more so um, instead of the counties, it was more so the electrical co-ops. Uh, because their damage numbers are calculated in to factoring, you know, whether or not um, they would be eligible for uh, reimbursement. And so it, it takes us a little while to get some of that. But we saw the opportunity of where we could add uh, these counties, these 12 counties, to make sure that uh, they would be eligible um, to get some type of reimbursement. Yeah. And there's, and do you have any, like, I, I don't need an exact number, but a ballpark figure for like how much damage was done in the in these counties by these storms? I don't have that on me right now. I can I can get back to you. I'd have to look at the the declaration request and that it would be in there, but I can get back to you on that. All right, cool. But yeah, so it's you said you mentioned the um the power companies. They were uh, what other now, other it's not other your pa- it's not your typical power it's not like your energy it's in mississippi power these are the uh the electrical co- the electrical co-ops it's those people who would be eligible for that type of um damage and reimbursement along with the counties that makes sense and that's in that yeah. in the, the counties that's for you know roads bridges and then like all the you know Reimburse for like the, the the recovery, whether it be emergency service or like limb removal and stuff like that. Yeah, so it would be for um, any type of debris removal, any type of life saving, emergency protective measures that had to happen, restoring any type of public infrastructure, so roads or maybe a school that had some damage or power lines that had some damage, that type of reimbursement could go towards that. And can you just just talk a bit about just how important these relief programs are for making, you know, these municipalities and counties whole after after storms like this? 
it's extremely important to be able to get the federal assistance in order to to rebuild back and, and come back stronger and more resilient. And so not only do we push, um, do we request, you know, public assistance, but we are interested in seeing what type of mitigation will be available. And so these counties can can go in and, and use these, mili- these mitigation dollars eventually to, who knows, maybe build um, – a new community safe room or get sirens installed, whatever their county may need. And so uh, being able to build back and build back better and stronger is exactly what these counties need. And, and that's why we felt the need to, to go in and ask for these additional counties to ensure that everyone who was impacted by these storms from June 14th through the 19th um, gets the assistance that they need. Now, as, as we talked about earlier, this is not for the homeowners. Um, this assistance is, is very specific. It is for public infrastructure only. Um, and then there are counties that now have um, – those counties are also eligible for SBA assistance. The private nonprofit organizations in those counties are eligible for um, assistance, not homeowners. And yeah. then you mentioned mitigation dollars. Is that like – so they, they get money and they can use it for mitigation efforts as well? Or is that like a separate chunk it's of the funds? It's a separate pop, yeah, it's a separate pot of money. And whenever we get a major disaster declaration, um, there is a percentage of the money that goes towards mitigation projects, hazard mitigation projects. It really kind of depends. We don't know how much money that's going to to be right now. It depends on the extent and the cost of the disaster itself and these PA projects and what's approved. But this the hazard mitigation um, grant program is where these counties can apply or municipalities can apply for mitigation dollars um, for a project. Uh, Rankin County did one years ago to build their Rankin County safe room. We have uh, sirens projects, trying to get new uh, alert sirens in different counties. All of that is covered under hazard mitigation. Now, there is a cost share, though. So this, the 75% is covered by FEMA and 25% is covered by the applicant. Cool. Is there other examples of our ideas that you've seen that have been floated or ways you've seen uh, municipalities or counties in other states use those dollars effectively? Like when you when you just talked about building back safer way, ways that oh, you yeah. can do that to prevent the kind of the, the kind of damage that we've seen here? We did. Um, if you look at our coast and the infrastructure on our coast after Hurricane Katrina, there uh, we had hazard mitigation grant dollars and the coast is much more resilient, much more stronger because they either uh, mitigated by lifting up um, those structures, reinforcing those structures. We built a number of safe rooms, um, community safe rooms after that. And if we would not have done that, Hurricane Zeta would have been much harder on our coastline than what it was. And so we are much more resilient now than when we were, especially when Hurricane Katrina hit us. And so um, taking advantage of those mitigation dollars, and it's not just you know, reinforcing in community safe rooms. It could be anything as simple as additional generators for your continuity of operations and for your, your emergency operations center. Good. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been extremely helpful. So I appreciate it. And thanks for the work y'all are doing. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mallory White is a spokesperson with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency.
Coming up, there have been several high-profile security breaches in Mississippi within the last few weeks. When it comes to computer systems, we talk with a cybersecurity expert about what this could mean for the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fix It 101 is a fun podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Many municipal services in Hines County are being disrupted following a ransomware attack on its computer system. MGM Studios, which owns the Bull Rivage in Biloxi, is also a victim of an attack. And two major hospitals, Singing River Health System and North Mississippi Health Services, have also been victims of computer data theft. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Jack Dunahy, Vice President for Strategy and Innovation at New Harbor Security in Vermont. It's an interesting series of events, right? It, it, I think they're all very, very different. First two that you mentioned in both Hines County and at the Beau Rivage, which is the casino, those are both ransomware attacks, likely, you know, came in the same way, typically phishing-based attacks that cause corruption, encryption of the systems, and then the systems have to shut down. In Hines County, this results in an inability to offer typically the services throughout their offering. And in the case of MGM and its subsidiaries, it changes the way in which they're going to be able to offer their services. And so that's like one style of attack. If you look at the, the healthcare attacks you mentioned, like at Merit Health and Biloxi, is different. That was a play, an attack where advantage was taken to steal personal and private information for people, which has a different strategy, right? If you think about these styles of attack, they're sort of focused on the monetization that people are going to be able to derive from them. So ransomware, you'd be in a ransom. In Bluxy, they were looking to steal personal information, perhaps for finding ways in which to leverage it financially for them, you know, later on. There's actually another relatively recent attack against Georgia's County, right, which was another ransomware attack, which again caused, you know, an organization that cares about providing services to the community to not be able to do so, right? So, you know, these these are uh, events which are indicative of what's sort of been a commoditization of some of the attack techniques that people can use. And so you see them being spread out more fully. I think probably a logical, uh, a logical question, Kobe, is sort of why are these happening, particularly to organizations like county governments, state organizations, uh, like healthcare firms. It's because the folks who are targeting them recognize that these organizations can't very well stop offering their services. So it makes it more likely that there'll be a higher take rate on actually doing things like paying ransom or having to react to the attacks when they happen, because these are super vital services that people care about. What happens when organizations that are attacked acquiesce and give into the ransomware and try to take back some of the data that has been stolen from them? It really varies. Traditionally, you know, we recommend uh, security professionals against the payment of the ransom because the results can be so variable. You know, number one, there's obviously the problem of 
continuing to finance these folks so they can do it more and create a profit motive for them. But on a very practical basis, there have been a number of reports that have shown that a large minority and sometimes even a majority of the ransomware payments don't result in a full recovery of the information. And sometimes it doesn't recover any information at all, depending on the nature of the criminal group, the nature of the attack type, the nature of the ransomware that's offered. So sometimes what happens is they get back, you know, the stuff has been decrypted. Um, At that point in time, you can't really know whether there are still copies of that information someplace else or back doors have been left. And so you really have to go through the process of rebuilding and investigating those systems anyway. Uh, And sometimes after paying the ransom, folks have an unsatisfactory experience in terms of how much time they actually save and do they get enough of the information back to make it worth their while. What risks do you think these attacks pose to Mississippians, if any? Well, I think Mississippians are are like so many others who find themselves victims to this, right? And specifically in Mississippi, where there is a lot of quality rural health care, we already know that uh, rural health care providers and patients tend to have to travel a lot further just to get quality care, simply because, you know, these organizations are more spread out. The effect of, as an example, a ransomware attack that shuts down a healthcare provider in a rural community is really huge, right? If, if you think about the stats that show you're already traveling twice as far as a rural resident to get to quality healthcare, if I shut down one of those hospitals, then suddenly I'm driving like four times as far. And that has a real and consequential negative impact on, on what's happening. Similarly, a lot of the services are offered through county and local organizations inside of Mississippi. They are required by sort of by law to be able to provide these services. And so there's a massive negative impact when those services are no longer available, whether it's you know, simply tagging vehicles or paying property tax or what have you. It can take some time to recover from that just to get the community back up and its own feet and running. So I think that, that that's a really important piece of it. There's also a lot of work that's going on inside Mississippi to sort of make these things better. There was a great uh, comment that came out from the Secretary of State, actually, Michael Watson. There was actually a denial of service attack against the Secretary of State's site uh, during the election season in 2022. And I thought that the way he presented it, which is the, the way they had seen it, the effect it had had, the fact that he could reassure Mississippians about the integrity and sanctity of the votes they were casting, I thought that was a really big deal, right? So we're not increasing unnecessarily the fear on the part of these these individuals, um, but representing that this these things do happen and these are sort of logical outcomes. What do you think are some ways that maybe not government because they have their own avenues for doing so, but businesses, hospitals, individuals who might have data they don't want compromised, how can they protect themselves to identify uh, early signs of being victims of ransomware or other cyber attacks? And then how can they prevent those kinds of attacks if they have not yet been? Sure. Two things. Number one, I think it's worthwhile, since we're talking a lot about these events as they happen, uh, to mention some good news uh, that came out of North Mississippi Health Services, right, where they actually had taken the time to do some serious monitoring of what was going on in their systems and paying attention to the way that users are interacting with the system. And they actually detected in July of this year, in July of 2023, detected a phishing attack that had been successful and they blocked it 
and stop the damage in 17 minutes. I picked that number up. But I thought that was a really good example of what can happen, to your point, when organizations take requisite care around things like monitoring, recognizing that these things do happen. So number one, I think, I think that's, a, that's a very big deal to figure that out. The second thing is we've seen a number of states around the country who are investing in basically subsidizing education programs. We've seen results of individual organizations going from like 200 people being susceptible to clicking on a phishing attack who through some really basic education and awareness training, that drops down to like two or three, right? So that focus on helping municipalities, county governments, state government to invest in training the folks so that they're less uh, likely to be a victim because they're more aware of the threat. I think that's a really big deal. So the combination of those two things decrease the likelihood by investing in helping the users or the community be better informed about the risk. I think that's number one. And number two, recognizing the mistakes do happen. Focus on focus on that mark, that monitoring of what happens on these systems. So you can be in the position that North Mississippi Health Services was in when they were actually able to recognize and, and block the attack, even though it had succeeded a little bit. Jack Dunahy is with the New Harbor Security, a private cybersecurity firm based in Vermont. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.